Hello and welcome to week 38 of Weekly Finds. As always, I'll present five outstanding content pieces and what I really learned from them. And as always, you'll find the full notes and write-up of these Weekly Finds as a TechBound member. So if you're not a TechBound member, go to tech-bound.com and sign up for the membership. It's $5 a month right now and I'm planning to increase prices to $10 a month in October and then possibly to $20 a month in January. I'm also continuously playing around with the format a little bit and this week I'm actually pretty excited because the write-up is more of a story format than a list format. So if you're up for it, I'd really appreciate your feedback. Go to the written form of Weekly Finds and leave me a comment at the bottom. Thank you very much. One. The first find is a video interview from Brendan Hufford with Tim Solo, the CMO of Ahrefs. And in that conversation, they talk about a couple of things that make Ahrefs so successful. And I have to say that Ahrefs is in general a really interesting company. If I understand correctly, they're bootstrapped all the way and they hold many marketing perceptions that are not shared by other marketers. So one example is that Ahrefs does not use Google Analytics. And they're also not the biggest fan of IB testing. Instead, they do many things with good intuition, reasoning, and heuristics. One of the things that stuck out to me in the interview is that Tim Solo mentions the power of brand. So they focus much more on actually building a great brand than overly obsessing over SEO, for example. So they don't use schema, they don't really think that much about how often they mention a certain keyword, and instead they really just try to do interesting stuff, which after my perception is the right thing to do. And another issue that Tim Solo points out is that many companies create content that nobody really searches for. So it really makes the case you know, to be keyword or topic driven, not overly obsessed for it, and also to not forget building links for it. The key lesson for me in this interview is that Atros actually doesn't really show pop-ups to readers. So they don't want to distract readers with, you know, uh, trying to force them to sign up for an email. And instead, they really bank on returning users and providing utility in their content. Two. The second find is an article by Sam Underwood in which he explains how to use search volume for seasonality. So Keywords Everywhere, which is a really cool browser plugin that I can recommend you to, to install, has recently launched a new feature that allows you to see the search volume over the last 12 months for a keyword. And Sam uses that to cluster search volume for different keywords by topic, and then from there make an informed decision about your internal linking structure, your title tags, and content creation. Sam also has a really neat Google Sheets template in this article, so I recommend you to check that out. And he takes his time to really explain step-by-step step how to set it up. The key lesson for me here is that you can actually use seasonality to inform your internal linking. One example is that, especially when you are an e-commerce site, to link to products that are in high seasonal demand from your homepage to make sure that they rank optimally and that users can find them. Three. Shifting gears a little bit, the third find is an article by Justin Jackson titled, Should We Always Charge More? 
And the answer is yes and maybe no. So as ever so often, it depends on something. In this case, it depends on the perceived value of your customers. And so that was really interesting to me. As ever so often, customer research and feedback is really the way to go here, meaning to really find out how much you should charge your customers. You also want to make sure you test your pricing to find that sweet spot. And when you test, test for different market segments. I also learned from this article that when you start out, starting with low pricing really isn't a bad idea. You can always add more, but going from a higher price to a lower price doesn't really look good. The key lesson for me here is that perceived value is really hard to quantify. In fact, perceived value is more of a feeling, right? If your customers feel like they get a lot of value out of your product, that doesn't really have to reflect the cost that it took to create the product or the effort. So what you want to work on as a marketer is to make your customers feel like they get a lot of value of the product, and then you can reflect that in your pricing. Four. Number four is a case study from Portent in which they checked how often Google ignores meta descriptions. So you've probably seen that when you have your own site, Google often rewrites meta descriptions even though you define it clearly in the code. So Portent looked at 30,000 meta descriptions um, of results that only rank on page one, and they found that 63% are actually rewritten by Google. There's a lot of nuance in this case study, so I really recommend you to check this out. But a couple of things that they found is that the rewritten meta descriptions tend to be a bit longer than what sites use. The key lesson for me is that Google seems to be more likely to rewrite meta descriptions for results that rank on position four to six to give them a little ranking boost and see if engagement is actually higher so that they can then potentially rank them in higher positions. Another interesting thing to me was that mobile meta descriptions seem to have a slightly higher rewrite rate than desktop descriptions. Five. And then the last find for this week is a real monster. It's an article titled TikTok and the Sorting Hat written by Eugene Wei. And if you don't know Eugene Wei, I can only recommend his blog. He writes really cool stuff about technology and especially consumer tech. So this piece looks at TikTok from a couple of different ways. And one of those ways is how TikTok and their founders actually abstracted culture. So to expand a little bit on this, I hope you have some time. TikTok initially grew more traction in the US than China. It was back then called Musical.ly. The Chinese company ByteDance bought Musical.ly for about a billion dollars and paired it with its algorithm that they created for the news app Dujin. And this algorithm is super sticky. In fact, it got so sticky because it groups users into interest clusters and then matches them with content that other users found helpful. So in a nutshell, it really understands people's interest. And then ByteDance spent about eight to nine figures on ads on Facebook, Google, Instagram, and a couple of other social networks, which is really ironic if you think about it. So TikTok is actually less a social network with utility and more an entertainment network. And the core point is that the algorithm actually overcame the need to figure out American culture because after all, these are Chinese founders and ByteDance is a Chinese company. 
So with their algorithm, they didn't have to understand the language and culture. They could just simply go to market based on interests. The key lesson for me here is that we've officially arrived in the age of sticky algorithms. YouTube was a nice beginning, but TikTok operates on a whole nother level. And it's not a social network. It really understands and deciphers people's interests and serves them the right and best content. So I'm very, very curious how other social networks and also Google are going to respond to that. As always, I would really appreciate a five-star rating on iTunes or a thumbs up on Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcast. And make sure you open and read the Weekly Finds newsletter because it's not exactly the same content. This podcast is kind of a value add to your paid membership. And I want to make sure that you get value out of both. Appreciate it and hear you next time.